Hey, Outcomes Rocket friends. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast once again. As a leader in healthcare, you have big ideas, great products, a story to tell, and are looking for ways to improve your reach and scale your business. However, there's one tiny problem. Healthcare is tough to navigate and the typical sales cycle is slow. That's why you should consider starting your own podcast as part of your sales and marketing strategy. At the Outcomes Rocket, I've been able to reach thousands of people every single month that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to reach if I had not started my podcast. Having this organic reach enables me to get the feedback necessary to create a podcast that delivers value that you are looking for. And the same thing goes if you start a podcast for what you could learn from your customers. The best thing about podcasting in healthcare is that we're currently at the ground level, meaning that the number of people in healthcare listening to podcasts is small but growing rapidly. I put together a free checklist for you to check out the steps on what it takes to create your own podcast. You could find that at outcomesrocket.health slash podcast. Check it out today and find a new way to leverage the sales, marketing, and outcomes of your business. That's outcomesrocket.health slash podcast. Welcome back once again to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we chat with today's most successful and inspiring health leaders. Today, I have the amazing Heather Bowerman. She's the CEO and founder at Dot Lab, a personalized medicine for women's health. She's a bioengineer and entrepreneur, recognized as one of the 100 most intriguing entrepreneurs by Goldman Sachs, one of the world's top 35 innovators by MIT Technology Review, and a World Technology Award finalist for health and medicine. Prior to founding Dot Labs, she ran business operations at Analytic. We've had a guest from Analytic here in the past, a Silicon pioneer in applying machine learning and deep learning to healthcare data. And she was a management consultant at McKinsey and Company. Some very forward-thinking companies, as you all can hear. Before that, she was a policy associate at Obama's White House in the Office of Science and Technology Policy, OSTP. Heather began her career as a biotechnology investor at funds in Boston and New York, where she led deals such as the acquisition of molecular diagnostics company to combat epidemics of H1N1 and H5N1. She's an outstanding contributor to healthcare, and it's a true privilege to have her on the podcast. Heather, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm psyched to be here. It is a true privilege. Now, Heather, did I leave anything out of your intro there that maybe you want to touch on so the listeners know more about? No, you got it. But I would be remiss to say that I would not have been able to have all of those wonderful experiences without great teams along the way. And I think my favorite thing about the diversity of the experiences that you outlined there, running from policy to private sector to um, investing to, you know, kind of uh, a random walk, shall we say, is that healthcare and particularly diagnostics has been the common thread. And I think looking back, it really was valuable to understand the healthcare ecosystem from all those different vantage points. Yeah, without a doubt, it's uh, your experience spans many verticals. So I think that's pretty cool because one of the things that we find in healthcare is really kind of the silo nature of it. So having that you've been through many of those gives you an advantage. And just out of curiosity, right, while the verticals have been different, it's been in the medical sector. So what got you interested in the, in the medical space to begin with? Yeah, well, as you mentioned, I studied bioengineering as an undergrad that was at UC Berkeley. And my first role out of college was as an investor. 
at a junior level, of course, at a fund in New York. And I had the chance to participate in a deal on the diagnostic side. And that was back in the days of swine flu and avian flu, if you remember that in the mid 2000s. Oh, yeah. And I've really been in the diagnostics world ever since. And I would put analytic in that category as well, but coming at it from the deep learning side. What I was really interested in doing throughout my career that I had never had the chance to do until Dot Lab was to build a product within diagnostics for women's health. And I think there's just an incredible amount of opportunity within women's health right now. And so I was really looking for the chance to build the product that I felt was, was missing in the world. And that background in, in diagnostics certainly helped both with identifying the technology and developing it, but also doing some self-reflection and assessing when I felt it was the right time for me to take that step in my career. I think that's super interesting. And so we had recently Kevin Lyman, a COO there at Analytic. I don't know if you had a chance to work with him while you were there or not. I didn't, but I'm so thrilled to see with where the company is going. And I think there's just so much promise for deep learning. I think that we've really only began to scratch the surface of, of where we can see that applied, particularly on the single-payer side in coming years. So it's really exciting. It is. So the, the company that you've put together here, is are you guys incorporating deep learning as part of it? We have not announced that yet. I think to take a step back, there are certainly opportunities for it, but it's not part of our immediate roadmap. That said, I think within women's health, we have seen multiple new therapies come out um, in the past couple of years. So I think there may be some sources of inspiration to apply deep learning in the near term, but it's, it's not on our immediate roadmap. Got it. Super exciting. So Heather, as you've been a part of so many different aspects of healthcare through your career, what would you say a hot topic is today that needs to be on every medical leader's agenda? And how are you and your company focused on it? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. And you could probably answer that question a number of different ways, depending on whether you're coming at healthcare from the buy side or as a producer of uh, services or from the pharma and and device side. Mm -hmm. But I think what stands out across all of those is really this move to value-based care, where I think, unfortunately, today, value creation for, for patients does not equal where we can extract value within the ecosystem. And I think this move to value-based care, regardless of what stakeholder type you may work within in the healthcare world, I think that's the most meaningful shift we'll see in coming decades, regardless of what happens on the policy side. Yeah, that's cool. You know, and I feel like value-based care means a lot of things to different people. How would you define value-based care? Yeah, I mean, for me, I think there's certainly the health economics piece, and that usually tells the story. But I think it's so important to just bring it back to patients. So with what we do at Dot Lab, we are working in a space that has had no innovation in really 50 years for a condition called endometriosis that affects 1 in 10 women. And today, there's only the extremely crude and invasive method of surgery, which requires general anesthesia. It's called laparoscopy. And that's the only way to confirm active disease in women who are afflicted by endometriosis. And as a result of that, the downstream effect is that the disease is caught really late. All these compounding sorts of costs uh, accrue over time. And so where it gets really interesting is trying to introduce a new non-invasive technology, which is what we're doing at Thought Lab, 
that would displace uh, the incentives that currently exist around surgery. So with value-based care, I think at the end of the day, what it really means to me is thinking about the patient and what will improve her or his quality of life and having the health economic story be built around that as what the system is, is aligned to move towards. So I do feel optimistic directionally about where the U.S. will be in the course of the next 10 to 15 years. And I, I think we'll continue to see bumps along the way. But as technology accelerates, and I think with how mobilized certain patient groups are, payers are certainly engaged and, and often aligned towards those same goals, but it, it will take some time. Yeah, for sure. And and it's pretty cool that you narrowed it to endometriosis, you know, and you mentioned it affects a lot of people in the U.S. every year. And it's something that hasn't been visited as far as innovating and approach to it. So it's so, so exciting to hear that you and your and your team are actually working for, for better results within this space. Thank you so much. And we feel the same way. And I am, I'm genuinely excited to wake up every morning and work on it. And I, I think for us, what's so interesting is within diagnostics, this emerging field of you know, call it liquid biopsies or other types of non-invasive biomarkers. I mean, I would argue that liquid biopsy just means blood tests. But for us, it's really about understanding how we can improve the sensitivity and specificity, what's widely accepted to be the gold standard, whether it's surgery or some other diagnostic test, in order to move women's health forward collectively. So with the case of endometriosis, the reason it's so interesting is that it's truly a black box within healthcare still. And so if we think about pelvic pain, one in seven women experience pelvic pain, and it's pretty straightforward to rule out some of the the key causes, namely polycystic ovarian syndrome, uterine fibroids, Compared to endometriosis, these are really simple tests uh, to run in order to provide patients with those answers, be it just an ultrasound or a blood draw. But with endometriosis, the average delay to diagnosis is still 10 years. And it's not part of that initial. Yeah. And it's it's not part of the checklist for what's assessed in the physician's office. So exactly. It's a very long time. And I think what we're really seeing is a shift towards with our test, something that's specific and sensitive for endometriosis in order to identify patients early as far as the stage of disease and help them make sure that they're in a place where they can pursue certain therapies or other treatments that can help to uh, improve the trajectory of their lives. So with young women, for example, who may start experiencing crippling pelvic pain in high school, Often these young girls or teens don't go out for sports because what if they're menstruating on on the day of a big game or they don't go out for the school play because of fear that endometriosis, typically undiagnosed endometriosis, will interfere. So it's incredibly meaningful to be able to really help these patients at a young age. And then subsequently, women are thinking about the aspects of endometriosis that are more closely linked to infertility. So how are you guys diagnosing it then? Is this something that you could chat with us about? Yeah, sure. So the dot lab test for endometriosis, we call it dot endo. Okay. So we have identified with dot endo biomarkers called microRNAs. So mm-hmm. that are specific and sensitive for endometriosis. 
So our specific microRNA biomarkers, which are under worldwide patents, we identified from a screen of thousands of, of different microRNA sequences using comprehensive microarrays of these microRNAs. Mm -hmm. So from the tens of thousands that we started with, we identified a panel that showed really significant differential expression. And we spent the past couple of years not only developing that assay, but uh, validating it retrospectively and prospectively in endometriosis patients. So I think the most significant sort of milestone that we're really excited to be able to share is that our prospective data will be published later this year. And um, it came out looking really strong. And we presented our interim data at the American Society for Reproductive Medicine meeting and won the Indosig Prize for the whole conference, which is attended by about 30,000 physicians from throughout the U.S. and, and internationally. So really pleased with our data and excited to bring the product out into the world. Congratulations. That's uh, pretty exciting. Thank you. So this is phenomenal, you know, and as you think about this chronic condition, it's something that affects the lives of uh, hundreds of thousands of people every year. So to have a, a way to detect it and fix it is is a huge win. So tell me, Heather, is there is there a time when you had a setback, whether it be your time right here at Dot Labs or with Enlytic or one of your prior engagements that you had a setback that taught you so much about healthcare that maybe you want to share with the listeners? Absolutely. The answer is every day, but one that comes to mind right away is thinking about how to develop and deploy the tech piece of our product. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really tempting when launching anything in healthcare technology to think that you understand the physician workflow. And it did come up that we're in a position to be able to bring our test out to physicians. And looking back, we overinvested our time and resources into the tech product where we, I think, in the future, we'll certainly underinvest on that side, um, do things manually before building an app that we're certain really meets the real-world physician workflow requirements. So, I mean, just like I think any entrepreneur will tell you, there's nothing like a customer or, in our case, physician interview to really open your eyes about what's really needed from your product. And so, as always, it's just critical to get out and talk to different stakeholder types to get a strong sense of what will take your product to that next key milestone, which in our case was not overinvesting in the tech product too early. Yeah, that's such a great call out, Heather. It's so easy and we all fall victim to just wanting to build this awesome technology. And then we sort of forget to just kind of stop even before we get started, but maybe even, you know, if, it's, if you've already started to stop midway and just kind of do a gut check to make sure the end user is going to like it and it flows well. Absolutely. And we have a great team here at Dot Lab, And I think we learned from that really quickly, almost immediately when we went out to go do physician interviews. And I think it's just a matter of really internalizing that feedback quickly and reacting to it and adjusting. But I, I think there are smaller versions of that that happen every day in a startup. And we're always just out there looking for all the information we can to make sure that we're ruthlessly prioritizing, shall we say, what we accomplish internally at Thought Lab on any given day. 
That's awesome, Heather. And yeah, with so this is great advice. And I'm sure with the leadership that you're providing to this team, you guys are definitely going to go far. And I'm excited to see that happen. Now, as you as you have you worked on different things, what would you say one of the proudest healthcare leadership experiences that you've had to date is? Yeah, well, thinking back to when I was a student, I had the opportunity to work as a fellow in the technology transfer office at Harvard. And I didn't necessarily know at the time how that would serve me so well in the future. So the proudest moment that immediately comes to mind is over the course of more than a year, working with Yale University to get the exclusive license to some of our early IP. So I was able to procure that license, but it was a long process. And I was pursuing the intellectual property as an individual as opposed to a large corporation. And so my negotiation leverage was, as you can imagine, not quite on the same playing field. But being able to get the license and over many competitors who sought the IP as well, that was such a turning point in the company's trajectory a couple of years ago and was the impetus for for subsequently going out and taking our first outside capital and turning our, our course from being a research and development shop to a commercial product company. So I look back on that uh, proudly for sure that we were able to accomplish that. It is a David and Goliath victory. What would you, <laughs> <laughs> what would you say contributed to your ability to do that? Yeah, I think it's just understanding how technology transfer works, which I had the opportunity to observe when I was a a student, as a a research fellow, but also in the Obama White House. One of my areas of focus and passion was around uh, this idea of lab to market, Mm -hmm. that there are just so many incredible technologies and scientific breakthroughs that have been discovered by our universities and federal labs. And I think the biggest mistake, in my view, that health tech companies make is just under-leveraging what's available within tech transfer offices. So I I had that thesis kind of in its earliest stages at the beginning of my career. But when I reached an inflection point where I was really looking to build a women's health company, it came full circle. So I think to answer your question, it it was really a combination of understanding tech transfer and the incentives and a little bit about the process and then just being persistent. Love that. (laughs) That's so great. There's nothing like a little understanding how it works and then that persistence to put the bow on top, right? Exactly. I love that. Well, congratulations. That's a huge win and sort of the beginning of of a lot of great things. So definitely inspiring to hear that story. Within your company, Dot Labs, what would you say is an exciting project or focus that you're working on right now? Yeah, so I am incredibly excited about our prospective studies. So a little bit about that and why that's significant. So as discussed, we are looking at the first um, technology to confirm active endometriosis disease since laparoscopy or surgery that's really, it hasn't evolved meaningfully since my grandmother's time. So that said, in order to compare our technology to the gold standard or the, the gold standard rather of surgery, you have to collect the patient samples during laparoscopy. So in the case of the prospective study, we looked at the biomarker levels that were significantly elevated in patients with endometriosis compared to controls. And the expression of the biomarkers was consistent with 
that in, in patients with suspected endometriosis, but were not found to have the disease upon surgical evaluation. So in other words, the samples were collected during surgery, which is critically important because if you cut out the disease, prior to analyzing the biomarker levels, it's going to thwart your results. So this is an incredibly difficult study to run when you're looking to compare against surgery. And we were able to accomplish that and to share the interim data with the key opinion leaders in the field and receive such a a warm reception. So really proud of that and excited about the future. Yeah, that's super exciting. Congratulations on that. And so you guys worked hard to figure this out. You've got the diagnostic piece put together. Is there also a treatment piece to the company? Not to the company, but in the news last week was the approval of the new class of therapies, specifically GnRH antagonists, also known as Elagolic. So AbbVie has a new drug called Oralissa that just got approved. And before that, the only second line of therapy in this space was Lupron, which unlike Elagolix or Oralitha is known to, you know, it's not administered orally. Um, The side effects can cause some unpleasant complications for patients, but it's as we speak that we're seeing the innovation take place on the therapeutic side. And in women's health and particularly in endometriosis, which just has incredible prevalency. Diagnostics are uniquely a bottleneck. And that's part of why I was so inspired to build this company Mm -hmm. is that unlike in most spaces where a diagnostic doesn't exist, and you can expect a therapeutic to not exist either. In this space, there are quite a few therapeutics out there, Lupron, now Elagolic, and even just the regular oral contraceptive pill or birth control can help in the earliest stages of endometriosis. While none of those are curative, the limiting factors are are not on the therapeutic side comparatively. And where I felt that we could make a huge impact on patients was, was really on the early detection and diagnostic development side. So it's really, yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, sounds like the solution's out there and just marry both to treat the right patients at the right time with the right drug exactly. or nothing at I all, think right? Yeah, <laughs> if you don't have the disease, I, I would hope so. And yeah. I think what's interesting about health tech and I think this movement towards digital health is that precision medicine is somewhere on the periphery of that, yet it offers so much hope to patients. And I, I think that it really does kind of marry different disciplines such as diagnostics with machine learning potentially in the future in order to best serve patients. But initially, you have to build that data set. For sure. Super interesting, Heather. And you guys are doing such an outstanding job there. Getting close to the end of our interview, the time flies. I'd love if you could share some answers to these lightning round questions. We're going to build a syllabus for a medical leadership course the ABCs of Heather Bowerman, and uh, four questions lightning round style, followed by a favorite book that you recommend to the listeners. You ready? Let's do it. All right. What's the best way to improve healthcare outcomes? Align incentives, particularly financial ones. When I say align incentives, I think that it goes back to the value-based care idea that we were talking about earlier, where Mm -hmm. I think for precision medicine to really take hold in women's health, but in other areas of healthcare and medicine as well, ultimately the health economics cases need to be built. And so 
whenever a new therapeutic is 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 offered or an underserved kind of population or any technology that displaces the way things are done and the way the various stakeholders are incentivized today, I think that we just need to keep a, a close watch on our systems to keep incentives aligned as aligned as much as we can. And of course, I mean, I unfortunately, uh, you know, unable to control that or the weather or much else. But what I can do <laughs> is think about where we deploy our technology in order to generate as much traction in the near term as we can at places where we do see incentive alignment uh, stacking up more favorably. Love it. And what would you say the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid is? There are lots. But of course, what rises to the top is hiring uh, weak team members. I think of startups like, I don't know, we're, we're all just boats where there are only a certain number of seats on your boat as a startup. And you need to make sure that each seat is filled with somebody who's really going to paddle on your behalf, whether you're paddling at the moment or not. And I think that especially with early stage startups, really anything before Series B, it's just so important that you fill your boat with as many A players as you can. You don't want any dead weight out in the ocean, right? Exactly. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> How do you stay relevant as an organization despite constant change? I try to never stop learning. I listen to podcasts like yours. I read every day. It, realistically, most of that reading happens on my phone, but really staying on top of the space and, and looking for just where your space is going and, and what's happening um, adjacent to you, I, I think that's, that's critically important. And that said, I mean, we do stay laser focused on our product and what we're building, but really just learning from if you can, I think the best thing you can do for your company. Love that. I hear that the average CEO reads uh, 50 books a year. So that I believe that, it. I think though, <laughs> I think a lot of those are on uh, audio by now. But, uh, but I, I would believe that. <laughs> I agree with you completely. I used to have a, a kind of a challenge. I'd say, well, I don't technically read them. I listen to them, but now I read them. Whether you listen to them or, or read it, you still read it, right? <laughs> yeah, you're consuming the information. I'm with you. Yeah, that's awesome. I love it. What would you say one area of focus that should drive every company in healthcare should be? I think it's really about creating value for patients. So for us, I think we're so inspired by filling this gap in women's health that's so glaring, where unfortunately, there's often a mismatch between straightforward business models and technology that can truly fill a gap in patient care. So if I think about a company that is uh, probably going to have success fundraising, it's probably something more with a you know, proven sort of footprint on the commercial side. But if you're developing a new technology to unlock or scratch the surface of a black box in medicine, that course probably hasn't been charted for you. So I think just staying focused on what you can do to bring value to patients and not getting deterred by the obstacles in your way, that's really the, the way that we can start to fill the gap. I think that's such a great call out. And out of uh, these awesome books that you read and the resources that you check out every year, Heather, what book would you recommend to the listeners? There are so many, but one that I love that comes to mind is in Ben Horowitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. He has this chapter called Nobody Cares. 
And he talked about <laughs> failure and excuses, mainly that the former never justifies the latter. So there will always be reasons why something didn't go well. But the bottom line is that your energy is better spent being a solutions person, which really resonates with me as a CEO. And at the end of the day, nobody cares. Just do your job. Love that. Straight to the point. Keep it simple. And listeners, you can find all of these resources as well as a link to Heather's company. Just go to outcomesrocket.health slash dot lab. That's D-O-T-L-A-B. You'll be able to find all that there. Heather, this has been fun. I'd love if you could just share a closing thought with the listeners and then the best place where they could get in touch with you or follow you. Yeah, I think my closing thought is just how excited I am for the next five years in women's health. I think there's so many great companies emerging. And so closely watch that space, particularly women's health companies that are female-led, which is a, a new trend that we're, we're starting to see. And, and directionally, I think there's just so much promise for the next couple of years. And you can find us on Twitter at hello.lab or get a hold of us by email at hello at .lab.com. Outstanding. Heather, thank you so much for making time for us today. And we're really excited to see where you take this field of women's health in the future. Thank you so much for uh, participating. Thanks for having me. Hey, Outcomes Rocket friends. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast once again. As a leader in healthcare, you have big ideas, great products, a story to tell, and are looking for ways to improve your reach and scale your business. However, there's one tiny problem. Healthcare is tough to navigate and the typical sales cycle is slow. That's why you should consider starting your own podcast as part of your sales and marketing strategy. At the Outcomes Rocket, I've been able to reach thousands of people every single month that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to reach if I had not started my podcast. Having this organic reach enables me to get the feedback necessary to create a podcast that delivers value that you are looking for. And the same thing goes if you start a podcast for what you could learn from your customers. The best thing about podcasting in healthcare is that we're currently at the ground level, meaning that the number of people in healthcare listening to podcasts is small but growing rapidly. I put together a free checklist for you to check out the steps on what it takes to create your own podcast. You could find that at outcomesrocket.health slash podcast. Check it out today and find a new way to leverage the sales, marketing, and outcomes of your business. That's outcomesrocket.health slash podcast.